Please open your Bibles again at Joshua 24, where you'll see our text at today is verse 15. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We'll be administering the sign of baptism uh, this morning, and it's a wonderful and a joyful occasion. I love baptisms. And <clears throat> we're going to uh, see the significance of baptism as a sign of the covenant. It speaks to us of what Jesus has done in the new covenant. That's very important. Uh, the water of baptism doesn't point to the baptized person and his or her faith. It points to Jesus and his gospel. It's a, a drama of the gospel. And as we consider uh, this covenant sign of baptism, I want to show you that it has a lot to say about family religion. Properly understood, uh, this baptism will be a great encouragement, not only to the family uh, that's directly concerned, but to all of us who have children or who have a care for the children in our midst. Uh, and in particular, we're going to stress the importance of thinking less individualistically and more corporately. Less about being isolated from other believers and more about how Christ places us into a family, a church, a community. And these are ideas that run very much against the individualistic mindset of our day. The last chapter of Joshua represents a covenant uh, making ceremony. Uh, in the ancient Near East, covenant making was, was uh, a very much, a, a very widely understood ritual. When a king had, had subjugated another people, uh, he entered into a covenant with them and he spelled out the obligations on either side. And there was a fairly uh, regular format. There was a prologue in which the king uh, introduced himself. Uh, and we have that here, uh, I am the Lord your God, verse 2. Uh, then there was a, a summary of the king's uh, triumphs, his victories. Uh, we have that again, Joshua lists the great deliverances of Israel in verses 2 to 12. And then the king, because he was the conqueror, would give his commands. He would lay down the expectations that fell upon the people. We have that here, serve the Lord and worship him. And then the covenant would spell out the, the, the uh, blessings that would fall upon the people if they were obedient, and also the cursings that would be their lot if they rebelled. And then they were told to uh, make a record of this covenant, and there was a note made of where it was to be deposited. And again, we have that here. It's uh, recorded in uh, the... Uh, book of the, the law of God and it is uh, placed under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. So all the elements of a covenant are here. <clears throat> and being in a covenant means simply that you're committed to God and that God is committed to you. The place they make this covenant is full of significance. It's at Shechem. It's the place where Abraham uh, stopped 
after his long journey, uh, first of all from Ur of the Colleys, then uh, from Haran, he stops in the land of promise at Shechem and calls upon the name of the Lord, makes an altar there. So <clears throat> it's a place which is loaded with significance. Uh, it's a reminder that God keeps his promise. The land that had been promised to Abraham way back then is now being given to Joshua and his generation. God is a God who keeps his word. And of course, God's grace calls for response. And so in an act of high drama, <coughs> Joshua has the people gathered together uh, to listen to this account of God's faithfulness. And then he challenges them to enter into covenant, to come into this relationship of covenant with God. Now, there are times like this when uh, people are kind of put in the spot and they begin to look around and see what everybody else is doing, you know? Uh, who's going to move first? Maybe there's a request for volunteers or uh, a mission trip is planned. And uh, <coughs> before I volunteer, I want to see who else is making their move. But not so with Joshua. And this really... Uh, lends to the high drama here before anyone else has said where they stand. Joshua makes uh, his position known. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, when, when we stand in front of a congregation in a baptism service, that's what we're saying. As for me and my household, as for myself, and those for whom I have responsibility. We will serve the Lord. Regardless of what anyone else is doing, we will serve the Lord. As a household, our direction is set. We will serve the Lord. So I want us to think about uh, this covenant signs. We see the parallels with, with uh, the covenant at Shechem and what Joshua says. I want to think about the covenant of baptism. And how it calls for covenant decisiveness. And then I want to look at the corporate nature of the covenant of baptism. That's to say that it involves families and not just individuals. And then thirdly, at the end, I want to think about the blessings that come from the covenant of baptism. So there's a decisiveness that is required in the covenant. Joshua is aware that many of the people that are standing before him this day are caught in two minds. And it's quite uh, a surprising fact that after all this time, after all they've seen of the Lord's works, that many of them have still got the idols that were passed down through the generations from the times that, that were in Arabic Chaldees and from the time that they were in Egypt. And Joshua has to challenge them to get rid of these. And we have seen recently that although we might not have idols of silver or stone, we very often make idols in our lives when we attribute to something else other than God the things that only God can give us. Uh, so we look for uh, joy. Uh, we look to other things for our treasure. Uh, we look to things to be our, our shelter or our comfort rather than look to God for these things. And when we do that, when we displace God, 
We have made idols of these other things. They, they are God's substitutes, which is what an idol is. And we can't serve God with a divided heart. We need to get rid of these things. We need to be decisive if we will be in the covenant. Uh, and one of the most wretched things uh, in most situations in life is to be in, caught in two minds, to be indecisive, to be neither fish nor fowl, hot nor cold. Uh, we all know that uh, the, the Scottish waters, the, the uh, Scottish beaches, no matter what time of year, the water is always incredibly cold. If you want to go for a swim, uh, it's a daunting thought, you know? And so you get all ready for, <coughs> for a swim and uh, dressed accordingly. You walk out into the waters. And the worst of it, I think, is usually when the water, cold water gets up to your thighs. It's like a really uh, pretty grim uh, experience. And you've got a choice at that point as to whether you're going to just stand there kind of hugging yourself and feeling miserable or whether you're going to actually literally take the plunge. Are you going to dive in? And you know that when you dive in, although the water is a shock at first, you very quickly get used to it and you experience the joy, the freedom of doing what somebody dressed for swimming is meant to be doing, swimming in the water. You're either doing that or you're standing there looking rather forlorn and ridiculous uh, halfway in the water. Jesus frequently addressed the importance of being decisive in discipleship. And often very, very striking terms. Uh, <clears throat> listen to these various groups of people. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, uh, we read these and we're frequently shocked at the, the very radical summons that Jesus gives. But I believe that when Jesus speaks these words, uh, he who knows what is in the heart of man is recognizing idols of the heart in would-be followers. Uh, there are some who are looking for uh, the idol of security or who have made an idol of their family and they must be challenged to get rid of these idols before they're ready to follow him. Jesus calls us to be decisive in serving him. And the, the wonderful thing of, about Joshua is he is just that decisive person. He's a great biblical character, Joshua. Uh, all through his career, uh, he is willing to stand uh, alone or very or nearly alone. Uh, from the beginning, when the 12 spies are sent into Canaan uh, to spy out the land, uh, 10 of them say, oh, we'll never do it. Far too hard. The guys over there, they're giants. We'll never defeat them. And Joshua and Caleb are strong enough to give a, a minority report and to stick with it, even although 
the, the rest are all against him. And when Joshua goes into the land and he becomes the leader of the people, he shows uh, his decisiveness in being a holy warrior. He's willing to carry out uh, God's commands. And even at times when the people seem mutinous, he stands for God. Think of others. Uh, think of uh, before Elijah, uh, th- of, of before Joshua. Think of Moses, uh, who was willing uh, to stand alone for God. Even when his brother Aaron was caught in two minds, uh, Moses stands for God. Think of uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel uh, in a situation that's very like this one with Joshua. Uh, He's confronting the priests of Baal, but also the assembled uh, peoples of Israel who are indecisive as to who they're going to serve. And Elijah confronts them. If Baal is God, Serve Baal. Be consistent. But if God is God, then serve him. How long are you going to stand between two opinions? Get off the fence, he's saying. Be decisive. Other great heroes. Think of Daniel's four friends. It's a great story, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar setting up this image on the plane. Everybody has to bow down before this image. And if they don't, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so you have this picture of the thousands upon thousands of people gathered, ready to bow down, to be flat on their faces before the great uh, image. When the music strikes, everyone is to fall down on their faces. Picture the scene. For as far as the eye can see, there are people flat on the ground. There are four men who are standing bolt upright. They will not bow down. There is no place to hide. They are completely conspicuous, but they are also completely decisive. God's covenant calls for decisiveness. Covenant demands decisiveness. Secondly, we we want to notice that the covenant involves us as families. We've also, we've always got to uh, be aware of reading the Bible uh, through the lens of modern culture. By and large, uh, our society today has lost a sense of the, the solidarity of the family. And especially going down through the generations, uh, very few, very few households today will have multiple generations living under the one roof, which was uh, fairly common in in Scotland in times past. In Israel, it was the norm, or at least it was the norm to to have the generations living in a kind of gathered settlement. Archaeology shows that there would be little uh, homes in a, in a cluster together with the generations living in proximity, and. The father gave a lead to those who were under him, to those who were in authority. And you see that working out in the Bible in a whole host of ways. That the solidarity between the head, which is usually the father, not always, but usually the father, and the rest of the family. And so Noah, Noah is, is saved from the de- destruction of the flood. But not only Noah, his family with him enter into the ark. When the Ten Commandments are given, 
the, the fourth commandment, the, the Sabbath day, is the responsibility of the head of the household to ensure that all under his jurisdiction observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. When the Israelites invade Canaan, uh, well, sorry, before that then, when they spy out Jericho uh, and the spies are given refuge by Rahab, uh, Rahab is promised that she will be spared by not only her, but her father's household. There's a family saved along with her. And on the other hand, as we saw recently, when Achan sins by taking the, 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 the goods that were devoted to destruction, not only he is destroyed, but also his family with him. God is a God who blesses down through the generations, as well as punishing through the generations. But it's with the covenant of circumcision that we see very clearly this whole idea of being in solidarity in a family. When Abraham is given the covenant of circumcision as a sign of belonging to the covenant family of God, uh, he's to be circumcised himself as an adult, but he's also to circumcise all the males who are under his authority. So that means Ishmael, who is 13 years old at the time, and it'll also mean Isaac at day eight when he uh, comes along. And from that moment onwards, circumcision is to be a sign of membership. If you were a Philistine and you converted to, to Judaism, you, you decided to, to, to follow the one true God, then you would have to have the sign of the covenant upon you, the sign of membership. You would be required to be circumcised, uh, if, if you're a male, of course, and also the male children within your household. In the New Testament, uh, we have a sign of membership, which is now baptism. And there's a clear correspondence with circumcision. So it's not surprising that uh, it is given to the new believer and to their children. Uh, the principle, as for me and my household, still applies. It's still valid. When Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and declares to, to those who are there, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What did the audience hear? Well, as people who were either Jews or who were converts to Judaism, they, they, they only heard one thing. They heard that this sign, this baptism, is for their children as well as them. They had been nurtured in the idea of, of solidarity, corporate solidarity, the covenant family. And so the newness becomes the fact that, that women and, and girls and people of all races are brought into the covenant and given the sign of the covenant. So it would be completely against the direction of travel, which is to uh, enlarge and to bring in more, to say that the sign that had been once been given to children is now to be denied to children. They remain uh, part of the covenant and they are to have the sign of the covenant put on them. And so you see that in some of the household baptisms that we have in Acts. Paul preaches in Philippi, 
Uh, and he's preaching to a group of women who are gathered there. And we're told that the Lord opens Lydia's heart. Lydia is converted. Lydia believes in Jesus. And all her household are baptized along with her. Same thing happens when the Philippian jailer is converted. Uh, he and all his family are baptized. And yet the interesting thing is that in the dialogue, the focus is on the faith of the jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now if Paul was trying to say that the sign of belonging now excluded children, he would never have expressed himself in that kind of way. And then uh, later on, at the rejoicing of the household, the rejoicing is focused on the, the fact that the head of the household has come to believe. Uh, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So, this corporate nature, this solidarity between uh, a parent who believes and the family for which he or she is responsible. And then lastly, the blessings that come. The blessings that flow from being in the covenant family. For Israel to say yes to the covenant was to agree to serving and worshipping the Lord. It meant being known as the people of God, trusting him and relying on him. Uh, for Jewish people in the old covenant, the covenant spoke of the need to obey the commandments and that they would have a righteousness if they uh, fulfilled all that the law spoke to them of their obligation. Do this and you will live. What's the new covenant? Simply this old covenant now fulfilled in Jesus. The old covenant under which we're condemned because we haven't kept it is now kept through Jesus. And we have a righteousness, as we were thinking uh, recently in Romans, which is not our own, conferred on us because Jesus has kept the terms of the covenant. The new covenant is the old covenant fulfilled in Christ. And then we are joined to him in his death to sin. We are made new with him in his resurrection. So the sign signifies and seals or, or, or authenticates the benefits of Christ. Now that's very clear uh, in the case of, of a, a new believer who's uh, come to believe in, in Christ. But <clears throat> when a, a new believer has, has children, the, the benefits of knowing uh, Christ are also benefits that flow down to the family. The children aren't left on the doorstep outside the covenant family. They're in the covenant family because of faith. Baptized children of believers have the blessing of parents who are committing themselves to proclaim the gospel to them and urge them to come to Christ. Now, that's okay, you might say, uh, but how does that make them any different from children who are uh, simply dedicated to the Lord without actually being baptized? Well, in this way, uh, the New Testament, uh, in an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians 7.15, 
speaks of how children are, who belong to one or both believing parents are in a special category. It's 1 Corinthians 7.15 says that when even one parent becomes a believer, there's a new blessing that comes into the house which puts the children in a favoured place in regard to God. And this is how the verse goes. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. It's a really precious verse, that. Uh, Now, okay, it's not uh, actually addressing baptism as such. It's actually addressing whether or not uh, somebody should divorce their their husband or their wife simply because they're a Christian and the other's not. Paul's saying, no, of course you don't do that. Uh, There's a a kind of spread of grace. There's a, a, a new status in the household. And while it's not speaking about baptism, it fits in with all that we've been saying about the children who belong to believing parents. We're told here that they're not unclean as they were before. They are now holy. What does holy mean? Well, we know holy uh, actually means set apart for God. It doesn't mean good. It means set apart for God. So these children are set apart for God because one or more of the people who are over them, either the father or the mother, or both, are believers. Think about it like this. Grace has invaded the home. Grace has built a bridgehead into the lives of those who are not yet converted. And this brings a special status to the children. They would have been unclean, Paul says, but now they're holy. They're in a different category. And for that reason, as believing parents, we anticipate them coming to trust in Jesus. Sometimes we speak of them being engaged to be Christ's. I came across a lovely expression in in the, the... Westminster larger catechism, not the shorter catechism uh, that we're reading, which of course was designed for those of feeble intellect, uh, <laughs> but the larger one, which has got more in it, uh, it puts it like this. It says that those who are baptized are those that have therein given up their names to Christ. I think that's beautiful. They've given up their names to Christ. Jesus wants them. Uh, as parents, we're praying for them. We're expecting them to come to Jesus. It would be contrary to all expectation if they didn't. They're those who've given up their names to Christ. So, in a few minutes we're going to see baptism. Uh, how are we going to benefit from it, or Puritans used to speak about improving uh, their baptism. How do we benefit from witnessing a baptism? If you're not a Christian, this is how you can benefit from baptism. It's 
a very vivid proclamation of the good news. As we're going to say shortly, the water represents two very different things. The water uh, symbolizes in the Bible judgment and blessing. Okay, two very different things. Uh, you find water associated with the water that deluged the people of Noah's day, but raised Noah up in salvation. Uh, it's the water that closed in the host of Pharaoh, where the people of Israel went over on dry land. They were baptized into the cloud, into Moses in the cloud, we're told. But the people of Egypt were baptized in judgment when the waters engulfed them. Jesus on the cross spoke of himself having a baptism to undergo. The water of judgment went over him. Friends, if we trust in Jesus, he bears the judgment for us. He gives us instead a baptism of blessing. And if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. And there will be blessing, not only for you, but for all who, for whom you have responsibility. And as we come, perhaps, as, as Christians to, to witness what's happening, then we're reminded, uh, as parents uh, make a profession and make vows, of that decisiveness that's involved in the covenant of baptism. And we're going to ask the Lord in, in our hearts as we watch it, Lord, stir up again my own passion for Christ, my own decisiveness to be a disciple that doesn't sit uh, on the fence, that doesn't halt between two opinions, but belong to Jesus and are unashamed to stand and testify to Jesus. If we think of these aspects of baptism, then we will derive great benefit from it. Amen. May God bless these meditations on his precious word.